Hello there and welcome to Thatch and Earth, your guide to conservation-focused travel. I'm Lawrence. And I am Phoebe. And today we're chatting to Michael Kirby. We are indeed. Mike is a great friend of both of ours. He has an incredible amount of experience in the bush. He has been to a lot of places that many of us would really like to go to, and he's got some incredible experiences. So it's going to be a great chat that we have with him. Okay, so today we are chatting to Mike, who um, is a very good friend of both of ours. Um, He is an incredibly well-versed bush boy. Um, and has a huge amount of experience guiding um, in various different amazing places. So we are super excited to get into that with him and find out about all of his experience, past and present. So hello, Mike. Hello, Phoebes. Hello, uh, Frosty. How are you guys doing? Yeah, good. Thank you, Mike. Good. Thank you. It's great to have you on, man. Lovely. Great to to chat to you from halfway across the world. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that we can do that even at this time of the year. It's brilliant. Amazing. Amazing. I'm sure you guys are missing uh, missing the kind of endless African skies, but uh, life will resume. I'm sure in the next uh, little while we can get and uh, share the magic. Yeah, definitely, Cannot man. Wait. Cannot wait to spend a bit more time in the bush and uh, definitely missing the waking up to the sounds of uh, Franklin and Guinea fowl, to be dead fair. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Kind of uh, those, little, those little orange and amazing amazing sunrises and listening to the bush wake up slowly is what we all uh, we all kind of live for uh, and i'm too missing that i'm missing at the moment yeah actually on on that subject um mike maybe we can firstly just get a bit more insight um as to uh your background in the bush um what you're currently doing at the moment would be quite interesting and it sounds like you're not in the bush at the moment maybe you can tell us a bit more yeah, so uh, so Lawrence, we started off, um, you know, as a as a youngster, always being kind of fascinated by nature and watching documentaries, and uh, you know, being somewhat removed from it. Uh, growing up in a in a city, you know, you you kind of dream about it. And um, after a bit of studying in university, doing something very unrelated, I uh, I made uh, I, I took I took the plunge. I took the plunge into kind of uh, do this as a full time work career. Um, and I actually had no idea what I was getting into at the time. You have this very romanticized uh, idea as to what it's like out there. Um, and in some ways it expectations and in some ways it makes you realize that it's not all that easy and doesn't often go according to, uh, according to plans as you, uh, as you both will know from your experience. Um, yeah, kind of, uh, at a, at a young age, you know, I was fortunate enough to have, uh, a friend by the name of Richard Stein, who uh, invited me to his uh, his place quite a lot in uh, in, in Botswana, and um, kind of having that freedom and exploring those areas, kind of without any you know rules like like national parks have, and uh, just being immersed in somewhere that's completely wild and untouched by man, um, definitely left an impression on me. And uh, it was kind of from those days onwards that I knew that I was going to do this as a as a kind of full time thing, and um, I just took me a few years of studying business at university to kind of definitely push me over the edge into uh, into this line of work. Um, so I went and did a course through Eco Training, a uh, fantastic uh, kind of training providers with properties all over the show. I think three in South Africa at the moment and one in Botswana. Um, and yeah, we you know kind of a year long a year long where you you learn bit by bit. You know, everyone, most South Africans think they know a bit about the bush, and I went in with the same kind of attitude. You know, I've been to the Kruger before. I know, I know how things work, but you really don't. And uh, I think the beauty of this line of work is that you will never know everything. You know, you learn something new every day, 
whether it's by someone with lots of experience or whether it's anecdotally, you know, watching something happen or unfold or new behavior or something new that you've never witnessed. Um, it's constantly full of surprises and rich learnings. And um, so I spent some time with eco training and um, during that year, kind of formal studies, um, I got offered a, a position to go and walk full-time as a student. So in South Africa, when you are a trails guide, you've obviously got to have a certain amount of experience before they let you walk in front and you know take the responsibility. So I uh, did a bit of walking through eco-training where I got required hours of, I think it's 300 hours. I think that's what it is now, 300 hours and 100 encounters. And um, I got that all done in kind of relatively a quick, a quick time. So, you know, usually people who've spent longer times in the bush will get that, uh, that accumulative hours racked up a lot quicker or slower than I did. So my, my experience in the bush probably didn't match my position that I was given <laughs> initially. And I had to definitely, uh, you know, jump into the, to the, to the deep end, so to speak, um, with my head underwater most of the time initially. But, you know, as you, as you go along, you slowly learn how things work and it becomes a lot more second nature. And um, so the area which I worked for eco-training was in the north of the Kruger Park in an area called Pofuri or the, uh, the Makuleki Concession. And uh, I was up there um, predominantly doing, doing walks. So we would have a, a trail season where we had trails camps, um, kind of permanent camps, and as well as kind of wilderness trails. And then when the African sun got a bit hot in the summertime, we, we stuck to kind of game drives and stuff from November, December, January, February, where it is lovely to be in the bush, but obviously on foot when it's 44 degrees in the morning, um, it's not ideal. Uh, so there are, that area had so much to offer in terms of wilderness and space. And um, I, I definitely learned more than I learned in four years of university in one year there. Um, it was just an amazing experience. It can, you know, you feel like a, you feel like a character out of a Wilbur Smith book, like an explorer. Um, and for me, that was kind of exactly what I wanted growing up. You know, that was the exact, uh, my idea of it, you know, being really remote, really in the thick of things, in, immersed in nature, you know, elephant and buffalo in your camp every night and hearing lions and leopards calling and hyenas going through your dustbins. It's, uh, it's kind of exactly what you, what you wanted. And um, so I spent a bit of time there. Uh, I was walking up there for a number of years and, you know, the nature of the, of the African wilderness is that there's so many different varieties and so many different areas to go and explore and uh, kind of immerse yourself in. And so after three years in Pofuri, it was uh, time to kind of change the scenery, which is uh, very natural in our line of work. And I was fortunate enough to go a little bit further south in the Kruger um, to Singita Labamba. So they've also got another private concession within the uh, within the Kruger, along the eastern boundary of, uh, with, with Mozambique on a lovely concession and um, at a kind of a, a lot more upmarket lodge compared to what we were doing in the, in the wilderness camps. Um, and that's, so, that's where I sit now. And um, why I'm not in the bush at the moment is obviously due to this um, pandemic of COVID-19 and uh, just the restrictions that that's had in place in terms of not allowing people to travel um, has had a big impact on our on our industry and um, and unfortunately on the wildlife itself. You know, without the the tourism revenue and the protection, you know, the animals uh, the animals need tourism. The animals need tourism in order to kind of continue. So we hope that this all blows over soon, and we can get back to our, our offices, so to speak. Definitely, and I think a huge thing that we've touched on quite a few times is how 
COVID has proven to us just how valuable tourism is for wildlife conservation and for so many people's jobs out there. Like every lodge has been affected. Guides are struggling really hard and it's something that we really hope people are going to jump straight back onto when they get a chance to to travel again, um, just because it's so valuable. Um, so at Singita now, are you still walking as much as you used to? Well, I mean, Phoebe's not as much as, as we used to, obviously, because uh, in, in Pofuri, at our, my previous job, it was, uh, you know, that was the, the kind of the, the job description. The area was very, very vast and with a very limited road network. So the only way you could actually amazing areas was on foot um so the 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 guests who come to where we are now are you know generally generally a little bit more i'd say upmarket and looking for not just the the safari experience as we to speak so finding animals looking looking for stuff and immersing yourself in nature but as well as the fine dining the wine the hospitality and also the, you know having a bit of comfort when you retire from your your game drive in the evening so where we are now, um, we do we do walk, but it's mainly it's mainly more kind of. So once we've seen a handful of animals on uh, on on game drive, we then go and kind of trail something, go walk with an elephant, or look at tracks and signs, or something that you wouldn't necessarily encounter um, on a on a game drive vehicle. So it's just a very it's a very different uh, type of guiding and a very different kind of a big adjustment for me. I'm um, going from walking constantly to to being in a vehicle constantly you kind of have to change your your whole your whole tack in a way so you know you want to get guests off a car to look at a track um because <laughs> you you know on foot that's kind of what you'd be interpreting so you know on on, on foot feeds you would you would you always say on foot you never miss anything so you don't miss a track you don't miss a flower it's very quiet um all you hear is the crunching of your your footsteps under the under the african earth and uh, you know the odd bird calling, and uh, if you're lucky, um, animals, you know, in the in the in the distance. Um, whereas on a vehicle, you definitely cover a lot more ground, um, and therefore you see more in terms of, of wildlife. Um, so there's definitely, I, I would say, as a combination, you you can't compare the two walking and, and a game drive or a safari drive um, because of how different they are. So if you are a first time to Africa. I would recommend probably sticking away from the walks initially, um, unless you're a young couple and you've got some time on your hands and you can spend, you know, two weeks doing this. And if you can combine the both, uh, both of them, I definitely would. But as a first-time visitor to Africa, I definitely just do my research in terms of, you know, what you want to get out of it, what, what animals you want to see, um, what areas you want to, to visit. Um, because very often the, the guests who come in, Safari is only a portion of the of the holiday, so you know they must spend a week in Cape Town or do the garden route, uh, and then have a safari kind of three four days on the end, which I still don't think is enough. But I'm very biased. Um, I think at least six or seven nights on safari, you will you'll get what you'll get what you what you want, and will only leave you longing for for, for more. They say once that African soil soil gets under your skin. It's very difficult to get out. And uh, generally what we find is guests who do come on their first safari, you never just stick it out as one. People always come back year after year after year because it uh, does it gets in you. It gets in your blood and it's very addictive. And uh, as, as we all know, the three of us from from, from elves, is that you know, there's still so much that you would like to see. You know, there's uh, interactions between animals, maybe an elusive bird, maybe a certain tree when it's flowering. But there's always something new, something different to see, and uh, you can never see it all. So there's always this 
this kind of what if, this excitement, uh, excitement factor of what are we going to see in the morning? And it's, a, it's very often a, a question we get asked by the guests. You know, you're sitting having a, a cup of coffee watching the sunrise and listening to the sounds and you get asked, you know, what, do we, what are we going to see today? And the, the beauty is we, we don't know. <laughs> we, we know as much as they do having a cup of coffee. And as much as they do, we just have to kind of put the, put the, the clues and the pieces together to try and, uh, to try and give them what they want and to try and uh, find whatever they're after. But, but uh, ultimately what we see out is not really in our control, um, which I quite like as well. You know, most jobs are, are very, are, are quite stable and there's a certain degree of monotony that comes with it. But I think ours is, is so variable on a day-to-day basis that you, uh, that it keeps it exciting for you. You know, <laughs> every day is different. Every day is a, you never know what you're going to see. You could have an absolute cracker of a morning or it could be slight, slightly slower and you end up having coffee, the scenic coffee with your guests and just getting to know them. Um, but I mean, nine times out of 10, even us as a guide, we've uh, spent thousands of hours out here. Um, we are impressed daily by, by what we see. And often your, your excitement and the guest excitement kind of adds together and they end up having this phenomenal experience and an experience that's almost unique to each set of guests that, uh, that come, you know, so the, the group of people you have with you kind of make the whole experience and uh, you share moments that you both take home with you and will remember for a very, very long time. Definitely. And it's, it's actually one of the most fascinating things about the bush is that almost ambiguity about what it is that you're going to see. And it's, it's pretty much up to, up to the luck of the moment. And it's, it can be even just a small interaction between say something like two impala species or, or, you know, just even, even the big and hairies or the fact that you found a track that was sitting outside one of a guest tent and the, that entire moment of awe that is encaptured around that little track that sits just outside a tent, you know. You never know what you're going to find and it's such a beautiful place to really spend your time if you're willing to be open and experience those moments, you know, on a daily basis and be prepared for a little bit of hardship to go through that and see that there's a much bigger picture at play. Absolutely. But, but one of the things I'm really happy to hear that you touched on, Mike, is um, the whole aspect of what you should do if it is your first time in the bush. It's something that Phoebe and I talk about quite a lot. And, and you're 100% right. I think one of the, one of the most um, common things is when somebody comes to South Africa, per se, or to Southern Africa as a whole, really, it costs a lot of money to get there to start with. And that means that they kind of want to have a little bit of everything. You know, they want to see a bit of Cape Town. They might want to see a little bit, a little bit of, uh, of the safari experience. And it depends where they're going, but it's usually somewhere in Botswana, possibly Namibia or, you know, greater Kruger area predominantly. And it's, it then becomes quite a bit of an issue because of the time frame that you're working with. You know, you only, like you say, you only have roughly three or four days to like really capture these guests. And one of the things that we always like to say is just like try break your time up so you have a little bit more time in the bush where you go to a place that is that you know classic, you know luxury bush, and then maybe spend one or two nights on, off the beaten path. But as you say, you know not everybody's looking for that, and you know, if it was my first time on a safari experience, what exactly could I expect? I mean, coming from someone who's worked in this industry for quite a while, what would you tell somebody if they said, what can I expect if I came on my first safari experience? Okay, well, I 
I mean, that's a, it's, it's a, it's as you say, it's not a straightforward question to answer, but hopefully we can just throw out a few, a few pointers that we've kind of uh, learned anecdotally from people who we've encountered over the last little while. But I mean, I'd say f firstly, it depends who you're traveling with. If you're traveling with kind of younger children or, um, or maybe someone slightly older, your grandparents who are a little bit kind of mobility impaired, you know, you've got to take those things in, into consideration. Whereas if it's a, a couple traveling by yourself and you're looking for a bit of a kind of an escape or a romantic getaway, also a different way to 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 do things. But I'd, I'd recommend, you know, as a as a first-time safari goer, um, it's always a safe bet to kind of, for the success of your entire holiday, to, to not just gear towards safari. Obviously, that's the premise, that's the reason for coming to, to, to Southern Africa. Um, but if you can break it up, you know, in terms of seeing something else that isn't safari orientated, um, you, just, you just stand that, uh, you stand that chance to kind of have that relaxing experience. Often on safari, you know, you're up at the crack of dawn and you are, you're busy for quite a lot of the day and you'll leave after a week of constant safari feeling, feeling like you need another rest, but incredibly fulfilled. Um, so what I'd always recommend is, you know, fortunately with the flights that are heading to Cape Town at the moment, you know, a lot of international uh, destinations are flying directly to Cape Town uh, from Europe, from, from the States, from Dubai um, and from Australia. So if I, uh, if I had to recommend coming inbound, I'd say come into Cape Town. Um, it's also a lovely place to let your let you get onto the right time zone. Um, often people coming from, you know, the States or South America, it's a bit of an adjustment and you want to just make sure your body's on the right clock. So land in Cape and uh, feast yourself at some of the lovely restaurants and maybe climb Table Mountain. There's a whole host of things to do down in the Cape, but it'll just let you acclimatize to, to South Africa, what you can kind of, it gives you a bit of culture, a bit of, you know, our flavor, our flavorful culture, you know, lots of different people and languages and, uh, you know, foods, taste, experiences, all in one big smelting pot. And generally from Cape Town, from there, you know, Southern Africa is your oyster. As you say, whether you're going into Namibia, where you're flying into Botswana, whether you're going to be going, you know, self-driving from Cape Town along the garden route towards somewhere in Zululand, um, it all depends on, I'd say, A, your, 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 the amount of time you have in South Africa. Um, I understand people coming from overseas with quite uh, with quite busy schedules. You know, to take a week off is never never easy. Um, but I mean, a week a week long safari, let's say seven or eight nights, I would ideally say spend a night or two in Cape Town on your way in, just to get you you know get the get those relaxing juices flowed and have some wine and enjoy the fruits of the Cape. And uh, before you you venture out onto onto safari, and I think that you'll arrive a lot more relaxed. Also, people that you encounter in Cape Town will, will kind of get you, get you get, you know. Um, everyone's excited about a safari, even South Africans down in the Cape. And um, what I would, secondly, I would recommend is definitely stopping at two different places. Um, firstly, you know, in case the first place you book into is not quite to your liking, which is very uncommon out here, but uh, just in case that is the, the, the situation or to just kind of hedge your bets in terms of seeing wildlife. Obviously, different areas are productive for different species. So if you could kind of combine two different safari stops or destinations, you better your chance at having, you know, seeing what you want to and uh, kind of getting what you want to out of the, out of the safari. So, you know, season is massively important. Um, a lot of people forget that during the winter in the Northern Hemisphere, it is piping hot down here in Africa in the, in the summer months. So 
you know, those kind of considerations are definitely, you know, if you are not very good in the heat or, um, or that's going to be a worry, then maybe look into coming, you know, middle of the year, June, July, August safari, which is generally the, the busy time, you know, because water is not readily available and the animals are very concentrated. Um, or if you want to come for a bit of a, an escape from the Northern Hemisphere winter, um, a summer, summertime safari is superb. I mean, the, the scenery is amazing. The bird life is fantastic. There's wildflowers and lush and green. You know, none of the animals are hungry. Everything's in very good condition. And um, you can then couple your safari stay with a nice tropical holiday, whether it be in Mozambique or Tanzania or Madagascar or Zanzibar, depending on what your budget allows. But basically from South Africa or Southern Africa, there's a whole host of things that you can do within one day's travel um, that are so vastly different that it's silly not to come and uh, experience it for yourself. I could not agree more. Um, I think it's really interesting what you said about picking two places. Um, we've said that before. We were talking about the, the big five and we were saying that Obviously, I am a, a European originally, so I've come through that big five mentality. And I've always thought, like, if you want to see the big five, fine. Go to a lodge for three days where you know you're guaranteed to see these sightings. Get them all in and then realize that there's so much more. And that's where your second place comes in. And that then you go to a place where you can focus more on birding or tracking or whatever it might be. And that, that gets that first sort of initial big five bit out of the way and you can sort of then get the proper experience that you wouldn't realize that you are actually looking for until you get to Southern Africa. Um, so that's always been my best advice for people. Yeah, fully, fully, fully agreed. I mean, I, I'd say a few, to add to your point with, um, you know, people, people coming on safari, you know, the big five is ideally the goal. It don't really occur in most other parts of the world. And, you know, it's, it's incredible to have these five or six you know, species of megafauna that all occur within one area of each other. So I think, I think it's very understandable as the guide to, you know, for, to have guests wanting to see that initially, you know, wanting to see a lion, wanting to see an elephant up close or, you know, a rhino if you, if you can. And um, it is our job as the guide to kind of hopefully provide that as well as build on, you know, try and create some excitement around what else you're seeing, you know, for, you know, and, and Impala, as you say, you know, if you've, if you've seen a lion before, you can stop and actually take in the beauty of an Impala, um, you know, and understand why there's so many, or why there's so many, what, they're the most successful animals in Africa, but often overlooked because we're looking for the big things. We're looking for the lion, the leopard, the rhino, the buffalo, the elephant, and um, which I completely understand because, um, you know, we have these massive numbers of them in, in, in relatively small areas. Um, but if you are open to to the safari experience as a whole, I think you can derive a lot more kind of joy and enjoyment and understanding to the the, the interconnectivity between species and how the whole ecosystem works. You know, rather than chasing a pride of lion down for four days and hoping to see a kill, you know, I think that's a that's your that's your time not not very well spent. And obviously, you two will know from your experience that uh, National Geographic doesn't really help to our uh, <laughs> our jobs because uh, it makes a, it builds a very un unrealistic picture as to what a safari is going to be like you know we are fortunate at uh, at Singita at the moment we've actually got a film crew from National Geographic that have been filming with us for the last kind of 13 or 14 months and they're going to be continuing to film for another year and a half before they release a half an hour program so they've put three years into filming for a half an hour segment so it's a it's unrealistic to assume you're going to see 
you know, a 20 lion killing a buffalo um, on your first safari. But the chance is always there. And that's what keeps you going is that no matter what you, if you, if you have your kind of expectations set that no matter what, what you want to see, something amazing will happen on your safari. And that you can almost guarantee, whether it's an amazing interaction or a lion calling up close, it's not necessarily a kill or a fight or, you know, what, what we, well, what National Geographic uh, portrays as entertaining, um, you know, there's so much more to it. And uh, if people just have that, that preconceived notion that you're not, it's not going to be uh, what you see on TV, but it'll be so much more because you could smell, you can feel, you can hear, you can get a sense of the size of an animal, even an animal like a kudu. To see a, a big bull kudu up close is seriously impressive, whereas on a, on a TV screen, you don't quite get that, uh, that picture. So there's definitely a, a positive and a negative that come with it. And after your first safari, it'll, you've been here at least once, on safari, you will understand what the fuss is all about. And I guarantee there will be a, a second time. You know what, Mike, I really like that. Um, and just to add on it just a little bit more, I think you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of something really exciting can happen. And it's guaranteed that something exciting will happen. And it can go even as far as just saying that you, you had a connection with the bush, you know, you established a little bit more of a connection with nature, even if nothing else happens, but that in itself happens, that's exciting. And I mean, it gets me really, really like jazzed up because I really enjoy watching people, you know, develop this connection with the natural world around them, because that's exactly what you've done. It's what Phoebe's done. It's what I've done. And all our friends have done. And when you watch that flower and grow, it's the most magical thing to see in somebody. And I mean, in, interest in the bush are countless, you know. I think if, if I had to look at myself, uh, I, I didn't really know much about um, botany, birding, you know, just understanding soil types, understanding meteorology. And they've all become these massive interests in my life. And I've kind of let the fauna kind of fall away a bit and just realized that there was so much more in the ecosystem around me. And I mean, Phoebe can attest to similar things for herself, as it sounds like you can too. And I was quite curious to know, like, at this moment in time, where you are and with all the experience that you've got, what is your current greatest interest that you have in the bush? Um, Cheapers. So, I mean, I'd, I'd definitely say that it started off with, you've, all, you've got a handful of things you wanted to see. You know, you want, you want to see leopards up close. You want to see, you know, maybe from there it evolves to something, you know, a hunt or a kill or elephants, elephant bulls fighting. Um, so it was definitely for me what I wanted to get out of it, a, a animal or kind of interaction-driven, you know, motive uh, behind, behind what I do. But the longer I've done it, the more what I get the most, the biggest kick out of, I'd say, is, is the people behind you or the people walking with you. And watching, you know, someone who's grown up in Central Park and has probably never walked barefoot on, on grass before, kind of immerse themselves in, uh, in nature and to, to have this perspective that only nature can, can give you when you allow it. And uh, people often, when they're out there on safari, they, they drop their guard. You know, no one's trying to sell them anything. No one's asking them for money. No one's badgering them at work. So people tend to relax and drop their guard. And once you have that kind of relaxed openness to what's, to what's around you, it can, uh, it can give you incredible perspective, you know, and, uh, and you can derive a lot of meaning from your safari, whether what you see is irrelevant, but the feeling that you take away and the mindset that you can, that you can take away from your safari, um, I think is so much more powerful than what you actually see. And to have guests come in for, 
three days, you know, three nights, and to see them arrive on day one and how they leave on day three and knowing that not you per se, you were with them, but what, what the natural world around them kind of did to them in those three days just speaks, you know, it speaks, uh, it speaks for itself. It's, uh, it's amazing to witness the, the change in people and the appreciation of, of wildlife and what kind of happens uh, down here on the continent. Definitely, Mike. Um, like, I, I cannot agree with you any more than that. Just watching people, you know, kind of shed their, shed their weight a little bit and seeing that guard being dropped and they start connecting with you and the environment around them. And before you know it, you're just, you're just a storyteller, really, or an interpreter. You're just speaking on behalf of the bush. You're kind of that custodian that just is there in the, in the corner in case somebody needs to, you know, have a little bit more interpretation and the rest of it's really up to them. And when that moment comes through and they start connecting more with it and you start seeing them just roll with these beautiful different insights that they start getting it's really really inspiring it's it's kind of at least in terms of for me when i was guiding one of the main reasons why it kept drawing me back day after day it was the motivation for me to wake up at half past three in the morning to make sure that the vehicle was extra clean and that i had extra water for everybody because i knew that they were really going to appreciate it yes exactly and it's really cool to hear that i mean also coming from somebody who's now had some serious experiences in the bush you know you've you've definitely, you know, experienced a lot more than what a lot of other people would say that they could really get to know in the bush. So it's really encouraging to hear that that still ignites you, you know. And I think on that, like, I, I, I think you you being able to talk about your, your greatest is probably not going to be easy for you. But is there maybe like a single experience that you could share with everyone listening that um, that you had with guests per se that you found quite memorable? Um, there's, I mean, to, to, you know, as the nature of safari goes, there's, uh, your mind springs to hundreds of different experiences because uh, everything's so unique. But I'd say for, for me, there's been one or two moments which have really, really stuck out. Um, one of which was, uh, I've, you know, seeing, seeing lions hunting, I think for, for me is, uh, is, is the most impressive. Firstly, you know, lion Lion for me are a very very special cat. To have something of that that power and um, you know when you th- when you talk about lion, it's it's plural. It's not a it's not a single big cat. It's a whole group of big cats. And what they're able to achieve together is quite is quite remarkable. So whether they're hunting a giraffe, which I've seen unsuccessfully, um, you know, two small little impala lambs, which an entire which a lioness will eat by herself in one sitting. You know, within four or five minutes, the entire little lamb is gone. Um, to see the power of those animals for me up close um, is really special. Um, and so, as you will both know, when it comes to lion, I think of all the animals we go, you know, on safari to go and to go and view, the animal is the lion is the animal I think we influence the least or we affect its day the least. So you know, if you go and follow a herd of buffalo or a leopard, for example, if they aren't open to you watching them. You know they're going to change their course and they might change their behavior whereas a lion you've really got to push the boundaries to to kind of stop to stop them doing what they'd be doing naturally so <clears throat> for me lion are incredibly special because they kind of let you into their their little world they yeah uh, you it's like being on on big brother a fly on the wall and you get to watch these animals doing what they would do as if you weren't around and uh, for me that's incredibly special so there's you know, two moments I'd say that are very standout. Um, one was uh, lions hunting a massive herd of buffalo, and just the kind of the the strategy and the uh, 
everything that, that came with it. Um, they eventually brought down one one buffalo. There's about 14 or 15 line, and um, they started feasting and feeding away. And we were parked relatively close, as you can do when you are watching lions feed. It's as if you don't even there. And um, the rest of the herd of buffalo then came back um, away from the water where the lions had killed them, and uh, and actually drove the lions off the kill. And to watch these buffalo, who we regard as I mean, I hate to use the word intelligence when it comes to animals because how do you how do you know? Um, but you know, something that definitely gave me a new kind of emotional side to buffalo to see how they were reacting to the, the dead member of the herd and to kind of see how they were skirting and the big bulls standing in front confronting the lions and the cows and the calves looping around the backs. So they wouldn't be close to the danger. You know, for me, that's very special. Um, and uh, as well as you know, finding finding brand new lion cubs, I think. <laughs> it just melts your heart to see what those animals start out as in life. These kind of a little fluff ball the size of your hand it grows into a 250 kilogram massive male lion is just so impressive. And um, I'd have to say my standout sightings are definitely all going to be uh, are going to be lion lion based. And I'm talking about sightings, not uh, not excitement. Um, excitement, I think, <laughs> being on foot. Uh, when there is a big animal close by, you don't get much. Uh, you can't be humbled by nature much more more than that. Uh, it's only then you realise that you're not number one in the future, but number seven, eight, or nine <laughs> out there. And uh, it's really, really, really humble, humbling to uh, to be next to even an animal that we don't regard as dangerous, something like a wildebeest, a gnu up close. Uh, to see that animal on foot, just it's uh, you're walking in the footsteps of giants, and it's uh, it's very special. There is nothing that brings your human instincts out more than walking in the bush is what i found like the instinct to run oh phoebe absolutely <laughs> it's so strong it's yeah it's and, and, and what what it's it's amazing it's amazing because i think i think within us all we've we've seen removed ourselves from the natural world over the last little while and to it's it's kind of innately within all of us you you find that when you spend time out there these senses or feelings or kind of, as you say, a gut feeling to either do something, not do something, to be hesitant or cautious or watchful, you get these inexplicable, inexplicable feelings that, that come over you. And the more you start to listen to them, the more you realize how a part of the system we actually are. And uh, your guests feel that too. The more you immerse yourself and you understand why things are happening, you you become part of it. And um, as you say, being on foot, there is uh, there is no no better way to 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 connect yourself to the earth and then to stand on it. Yeah, definitely. So there's two things I want to pick up on. First, I need to share what you said about lions with everyone in the world. We have been on a mission to get people to realize that going to somewhere on the garden route and petting a lion cub is not conservation. You are not even seeing essentially a real lion there that has <laughs> no. zero value. So I, I'm tr I'm trying to convince people that watching lions in the wild hunting in prides is the most important thing that you can do for lion conservation by far and it will teach you the most about lions absolutely the second thing that um i, I wanted to ask you so we're, we're talking about sort of like instincts and those emotions that come up so again speaking as someone who has been on their first safari and remembers it because i was only about 15 um how do you deal with fear? So we're talking about sort of people who, you know, they live in cities, they have this image of lions just as much as Jaws did for sharks. You know, people are terrified of lions. My dad, a giant bull of a man, is scared of lions. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that, that sort of emotion and dealing with people's fears in the bush? 
Well, I mean, so Phoebes, we'll answer this in twofold. I'd say that, you know, initially when you're on foot, I'd say fear is exceptionally natural. And uh, trust me, the guys in front are as scared as the guests at the back, just we're not allowed to show it, you know. So in terms of fear, fear then being on foot, you try and not put yourself in a situation where, where you nor the guests need to be fearful. Um, and that often comes with understanding. Um, so, and then getting back to a vehicle, the same thing would apply. For example, like your dad is a little bit nervous of lions or you've got you know, younger children who are you know, 10 or 12 years old and they haven't got quite the, the conceptualization of sitting in an open game view looking at a lion at three meters away. Um, you know, as, as a guide to manage fear is definitely reading your guests. So if someone looks nervous as you're approaching, you know, it's good. Just turn off the engine, let them get used to seeing the animal from a, a distance to realize that it's, it's not threatening. The animal hasn't changed its behavior and maybe just walk them through what the animal is doing. So to say, listen, that animal, it's not even looking at us. It's not displaying any, you know, signs of, uh, of, of threat or of it being uncomfortable. And then just to explain, you know, what we're going to be doing. So you ask the group, are you happy to go a little bit closer? I think we can get a good, you know, good photograph from, from that angle. And um, to manage fear, I think, of your guests, as well as fear of the animals is definitely important. To not, to not overstep the mark, to not push the boundaries. Um, because even someone like I've got members of my family who were very okay with things like elephant, but then had an experience where one was pushed too close towards elephant uncomfortable with them so it's it's definitely having a respect for your guests and a respect for the animals and i think if both are shown um the fear will kind of fall by the wayside especially after the first or second drive but it's a very you do have to manage that um because you know it, it, there's nothing worse than putting people who are, you know traveled across the world to come and witness something in a position where they are fearful and um you know, whether that means stopping a little bit further away or not really focusing on that animal in particular that they're scared of, you know, you can derive a very good, you know, holistic experience um, without leaving fear behind. Some people want that excitement and want a lion walking right up against the car or to have an elephant up close. But I'd say most people are, are, are fearful of that. And it's up to you to manage, to manage that situation, whether even if you don't feel it's dangerous, just maybe step away from it just to uh, just for everyone's sakes for the for the comfort of the guests and for the animal because if the animal's walking by and um, and your guest has a bit of a you know a bit of bit of nerves show through and they make a noise it can change the behavior of the animal and they both kind of set each other off it's a big trigger and um, you know at the end of the day these animals are going to be there long after the guests leave long after I leave and uh, so it's only it's only right that we treat them with respect and give them the space that they deserve, you know, not to follow an uncomfortable animal, not to kind of push the limits with, you know, especially animals with cubs or, um, or nervous animals to so just give them a space they need to move away when they want to. And with that, I think that people sitting behind you will kind of acknowledge your sensitivity uh, and will also kind of appreciate the fact that they haven't been put in a situation that is dangerous and allowed that fear to, uh, to, to develop. Definitely. I think it's it's actually really important that as as a guide you maintain a, a level of respect to both guests and to the animals around you. It's it's such a it's such an easily overlooked thing, particularly when you're chasing you know, you're chasing a little bit of extra money if you if you're a guide who's a little bit hard strapped for cash and that's that, that, that's your incentive to be out there or if 
it's just purely to to make sure that your some of your guests are getting that experience, but you you're not catering to the full group or the, to the whole vehicle. You, you can overlook that, and you can put people in situations that can truly scar them if you're not careful. And I think the key thing here is that a lot of the fears that come from people, yes, some individuals may have a genuine phobia, and that's not something that's easily overcome. But most of the fears that come out of it is just not being educated in that particular situation or about that particular animal. And as a guide, when you sometimes get put in those situations where it's like you say, you never know what you're gonna ha- what's going to happen to you. In that situation, it's up to you as the guide to firstly read the situation, assess it, do your best to get out of that situation as quickly as possible, and then turn around and actually debrief your guest. You know, tell them what's happened, explain to them. When you see they're nervous, you say, you know, there were things that were happening in that situation that you didn't need to be nervous about because this was happening. You know, I could see this and this and this, and they, they at least put a bit more faith in you. And from doing that, you can start showing them a little bit more about the beauty of these animals rather than what they are afraid about. And it's a very important thing. You know, for for you, for you as well, you are super, super like versed in the bush. So, you know, what would be some a little bit nerve wracking for you could be utterly terrifying for somebody who's never been in the bush. But again, your sensitivity comes down to it. And what I'm what I'm really curious about now is somebody with your level of experience if you had to go to a lodge as a guest, what what would you want from that guide? And, you know, what kind of experience would you look for? Provided that you obviously don't tell them that you're a guide because every guide's worst nightmare is to guide a guide. Yes. No, there's nothing more terrifying than that. Yeah, nothing more terrifying than guiding another guide. Um, but, you know, if I, had to, if I had to go to a new a new area, I mean, in particular, you know, somewhere away from the Kruger Park or, you know, somewhere in Namibia or Botswana or Zim, you know, for, for me, having seen kind of what I want to in terms of uh, in terms of fauna, I'd be a lot more interested in kind of scenery and landscapes and definitely a bit of history. If there's, a, if there's history of, of the area, you know, that's also, that, that's for me very, very important. It kind of, I don't know, it gives you that... Uh, that, that understanding um whereas or you know behavior of animals you know how why do the elephants here behave different to the elephants where i work or the areas that i've seen you know what what drives them to you know it's it's as you as you say with as we were talking about with uh with fear it comes to understanding and communication so if you if you uh, if you kind of and the guides you know as as all three of us know the the more of a heads up more of a heads up you have when it comes to you know what people want what the expectations are the easier you can manage them and um so just letting your guide know what you would kind of like to get from the experience they can hopefully then you know go out their way to fulfill that because you know 99 percent of the guides who work in the industry are exceptionally passionate and are only there to kind of share an experience with you not so much to uh to kind of uh just as you say make do it for do it for the the uh the money the the tip at the end, the end of the day but um for me, as a as a as a guide going to new lodge, I would definitely look for a kind of a new area, um, somewhere I never experienced or or had the chance to go and see. Whether it's a private concession or it hosts a new species of tree or bird I've never encountered, you know that for me would be definitely exciting. Whereas if it's your first safari or second safari, these there are thousands of options in terms of variety that you can have. You know, two two safari stops. Um, and essentially see the same things, but have two completely different experiences. You know, have two very wildly different experiences 
although you're still seeing elephants and lions and hopefully rhinos, um, you know, I think where you are and the people around you, the setting, you know, some lodges are right in the middle of nowhere. Some lodges have got a little bit more of, a, of an atmosphere to them. So, you know, I'd say that no two places are the same. And the only way to, uh, to really get an understanding is to go and visit them yourself. Um, so even for me, that question is quite tough. It's quite tough to know where I would go and what I'd be looking for because somewhere, somewhere new is always exciting. See, to me, it sounds like you're not looking for a specific place. It's more you're looking for an educational opportunity, which is perfect because that's essentially what the whole of Thatch and Earth is about. Like the whole mission of Thatch and Earth is to focus on, you know, you, you can go and say, okay, I want to see the big five or the six species that make up the big five and I'll go there. Or you can go and say, I want to learn. Like this is a huge opportunity to learn. And as that amazing quote goes, sort of like, we will only conserve what we love. We will only love what we understand. And we only understand what we're taught. And I think it's this is where the guide really comes in. And it's, it's, they, they have that responsibility to teach. And they cannot waste that opportunity to educate people because you don't know who you're influencing in that vehicle. It's say if you've got kids, you could be creating future conservationists. Or say if you've got a director of a huge organization, you could be you know, bringing about sort of massive investment in conservation. And I think that that's like the whole the whole mission of Thatch and Earth is just to bring more education into this experience. So it's really nice to hear that that's kind of the root of what yeah. you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, and as I mean, I'm sure with, you know, with, with Thatch and Earth and what you guys are about, it's a, you know, as you say, education is, is incredibly important. And, and you, you know, you as the guide have the responsibility to kind of hopefully connect the two closer together. And you're not going there to sit and lecture and, uh, and to learn about things. It's more of just, you know, being walked through what you're seeing in front of you um, as, a, as a kind of in the background narrative. And, um, you know, as you say, looking for, for safari, I think what people come from, and uh, and the experience of that but what they end up leaving is with that feeling and that feeling that we can't describe but we've all felt um in terms of a really truly unspoiled wild place that are really becoming few and far between these these days to to visit an area that uh, invokes this kind of primal primal feeling of peace and joy and kind of bewilderment um is what we're all after and and for, I think there's no better place to find that feeling than in the, in Africa. Um, whether you are in the east, west, north or south, um, there's a, a place like that almost everywhere. Too true, too true. And, you know, it's 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 so difficult as, as a first time. I mean, I'm obviously not speaking from pure experience, but just hearing all my friends who have, it's so difficult to, you know, kind of have an expectation as to what this place is going to be like because it's kind of like trying to explain to somebody who can't see color what color is like you know unless you actually fully experience it you don't really understand that that little bug that bites you so as you've said and you know coming from again from somebody who's working in the industry if if you could just give potential guests one piece of advice in terms of you know going on their first safari experience or even possibly returning what would that advice be um i would definitely say do uh, do a bit of homework so whether it's if you're booking the trip yourself or uh, or you're going through you know an agent or someone who knows what they're talking about do you know that it is a very very big vast continent with very different places and uh, 
you know, I think with the internet at your fingertips now, it's uh, you have no excuse to kind of overlook an area. Um, and if, you know, I'd, I'd say if you're looking for a, a big five experience, you know, maybe just look at the areas which, which you know, you stand the best chance of seeing that. Whether if you're looking for a more of a wilderness experience, you know, being really remote and immersed, I mean, there's no shortage of those places around here. I mean, uh, all over Botswana and Namibia and uh, even in the north of the Kruger, um, there are some areas where you feel like you are the only human for 100 kilometers uh, in either either direction. So I'd say definitely do your homework um, as, as the first the first step. I'd say secondly, make sure you are comfortably dressed. Uh, and that's not to be uh, mistaken with uh, stylishly dressed. as uh, We see this very safari chic dress code that, uh, that permeates throughout the lodges, but just make sure you're going to be comfortable. You know, if you're coming in the in the in the dead of winter, um, often those mornings can be a bit chilly. But you know, come eight o'clock, nine o'clock, it's hot again. So know how to dress. You know, if you're coming in the winter time, make sure you're going to be comfortable. You got stuff that you can kind of peel off and uh, and apply some sun cream. And if you're coming in the summertime, um, you know, the same applies. Make sure you've got nice light clothing and you've got a sense of humor for when it's 40 degrees. And uh, hopefully there's a swimming pool nearby. So in between your drives, you can cool off and uh, watch the animals come to come to drink. And um, I'd say as a third step of advice um, would definitely be bring a camera. Um, and I'm not talking about your iPhone for a, a selfie. Um, if you can get your hands on a camera, whether it's yours or, or a friend's, or you can rent one back home. Um, some lodges even do rent cameras out to guests. You know, often the animal that you're wanting to, to view um, isn't as close as you would like um, or is or you witness something that is so special that you know words can't even do it justice and uh, I'd say that's where a camera comes in you know and then as you say with a conservation perspective that you're you then go home and show your friends and family and uh, you know something that's always been on tv when you see someone that you know has experienced something as amazing as that it does invoke the kind of urge to go and do that yourself and to, to travel and experience it for yourself. And there's no better way to do it. No matter how many documentaries you watch, nothing can actually prepare you for the real thing. And the, you know, the amazement of even seeing something like a giraffe standing right next to you, it's just incredible. Um, it's incredible to see. So be, be prepared to kind of, uh, it's, it's an, uh, it's an unknown. It's an unknown. I'd say be, be prepared be prepared for absolutely everything, you know, weather, weather, where you're going, um, you know, be correctly dressed. If you have, you know, fairer skin, pack your sun cream, pack your mosquito spray. Um, so the things that are make you comfortable, things that are in your control, I'd say prepare for. Um, and then the rest of it will just kind of fall into place. Uh, the safari experience will speak for itself and um, you will, I have no doubt, get what you want from it. Absolutely beautiful. That I think that is the perfect way to end, to sum it up, that the energy that you put out there will return to you and you will get out exactly what you want from it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mike. This has made me so jealous and I now need to get back to the bush like tomorrow. <laughs> it's been really, really lovely to get your experience. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, as always, Mike, it's 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 so fascinating to, you know, pick your brain a little bit more and to hear a bit more from the formal side of you. Because, I mean, you and I have spent a lot of time in the bush in a very informal way. So it's, it's, it's really it's really lovely to get a little bit more insight as to what your professional career has taken you uh, taken you through and the, the insights and the knowledge that you've gained. And again, yeah, thank you very much for 
carving a little bit of your time out of the day to you know share some information with us pleasure it's a pleasure and uh, hopefully the three of us can reunite under the uh, the same acacia tree and have a gin and tonic in the uh, a few months and once everything's uh, gone gone back gone back to normal we would absolutely love that we will uh, we'll, we'll set it up That's we'll the dream. there's no shortage of acacias out here and uh, there's a lot of gin flowing around now that all these uh, lockdown restrictions have been lifted so we urge not just you two, but everyone, come and travel, come see what we have to offer, and uh, come and experience safari, because it's something you will never forget. Perfect. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, Alrighty. Wow, what a great chat, as always with Mike, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. He really just brought out some amazing topics and really just sort of showed his incredible knowledge and professionalism in this field, which I really enjoyed. Definitely. And I think the other thing that he really touches on throughout this conversation is how important the guests are in an experience like this. You know, when we think of conservation, we think it's animals first and foremost, but there is a human element in there, obviously. And it's actually something that we as conservationists need to consider and work on. And it's really refreshing to get a take like that from somebody who pretty much works in this particular field based around human contact with the natural world around them. So it's been really encouraging to hear a bit more about him and about what he's up to at the moment. Yeah, yeah, could not agree more. I think it was a perfect, perfect episode and really summed up what we're trying to do here at Thatch and Earth. So if you want to learn more about our message and everything that we're doing here, you can head to thatchandearth.com for our main site and you can go follow us on Instagram and Facebook at thatched underscore earth. If you want any more information, you can message us directly on any of those platforms. And please leave us a comment and a like and a subscribe. And as always, thanks again for listening. I'm Lawrence. And I'm Phoebe. Bye. Peace.